Hello and welcome to another episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this episode. So stick around and we will jump right on in. Right, so before we get started, are you looking for a gift for your loved ones in the upcoming season? but don't want to get them some consumer junk that'll just get tossed out in a couple weeks? I know I always struggle to find gifts that will have a positive impact, something that will fill the coming year with the practical and positive solutions that permaculture has to offer. So consider a gift subscription to Permaculture Magazine of North America. From recipes from the garden to useful DIY projects, tips from the pros, and so much more, a subscription to Permaculture Magazine is a perfect way to spread positivity and useful knowledge all year long. Your friends and family will be thrilled to have all this information at their fingertips as they develop their own healthy and regenerative lifestyles. If you order the print version, you'll also receive the 25-year digital archive of the original Permaculture International magazine from the UK as a free bonus for a limited time only. There's also a digital subscription option for people like me who are always traveling and need this as a resource while we're on the go. Permaculture magazine is a proud sponsor of the Abundant Edge podcast and here to be a platform to support the voices of the permaculture movement throughout North America. So show your support this holiday season and help to strengthen the permaculture revolution with a subscription today at permaculturemag.org. All right, welcome to another episode of the Abundant Edge podcast. Today I have a very knowledgeable and experienced guest from the world of natural building for y'all. Rowan Sutherland from Earthship Biotexture is here to talk about one of the most famous and recognizable icons of the natural building movement in the last 30 years. Of course, I'm talking about Earthships. Now, Rowan began in international social and environmental work before getting involved with Earthship Biotexture. After being inspired by their on-the-ground work around the world and the appropriate technology and design that they promoted. Rowan has some amazing stories to tell from his international work, but more than anything, he goes into great deal about the systems and techniques that Earthships exhibit and promote, which facilitate off-grid, self-sustainable living and integration of their structures with the environment. In this interview, we talk at length about indoor food production systems, water harvesting and reuse, and how earthships can be improved and adapted further by using more natural materials. Rowan even talks about the catch-22 of self-sustainable living and how it can have a negative impact on community development and connection if not managed correctly. This is another very information-dense interview, so get your notebooks ready and I'll hand things over to Rowan Sutherland. Hey, Rowan, such a pleasure to have you today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks, Oliver. It's my pleasure. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a gorgeous day here in Guatemala. I would imagine you've got pretty good weather there in California as well. We do. We just have those clouds of smokes, which are, you know, covering the sky. But other than that, it's a, it's a nice day here in California. Fantastic. Not bad for December, huh? No, no, no. Pretty good. It's a, it's a change from Taos. We're here just for a month visiting. Oh, yeah, I remember from when I lived there. It's probably pretty darn cold this time of year. It is, yeah. Cool. Well, how about we jump right into the questions, and if you could start by telling us a little bit about your own background and how you got started in natural building and eventually uh, working with the Earthship community, that would get us started off. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's um, I've always I've had an international background, so I've kind of moved my whole life. And every at every stage, I've pretty much done social and environmental work. Um, it could have been on the side of my studies or even while I was working. I, uh, I studied international relations and I started working with the UN and international organizations, uh, mainly in the fields of adaptation to climate change, international development, um, and everything regarding cities and how uh, to help them become greener and collaborate between themselves. So during my work and studies, I you know, came upon permaculture, ship biotechnology, and I studied all the theory behind it. But I was, you know, I was mainly a project manager in, in those fields that I was talking about. And... Um, then I, I came to Cameroon in Africa on a job with the UNDP, UN mm-hmm. Development Program. And I was working on adaptation to climate change with the government there. And I came to the point where basically I, I wasn't feeling that 
my work was having a real impact um, in any way. So I decided to kind of get involved myself in the practical side. That's when I saw that Earthship Biotecture was having a, a project in Malawi, also in Africa. So I thought the transition would have been perfect, that the opportunity was kind of perfect and the timing as well. So um, that's how I started. And then just, you know, having uh, had a good kind of experience with them and the people working for the company, I then decided to continue doing my academy, that's the kind of schooling session, with them on the first international uh, academy session outside of Taos, New Mexico, which was in Ushuaia in Argentina. And I already helped them because I spoke Spanish. I already helped them, you know, translating a few things. That's how I was able to actually attend the session. And then after that, I, uh, I continued working with them on international uh, sessions as a translator, also helping with logistics and uh, communication until they basically asked me to come to work in Taos, New Mexico, uh, where I've been working for, for the past year and a half. I uh, have had my own projects as well, and it actually all started with Cameroon again, with an orphanage that I met. I was working on the side of my work, as I was saying, I didn't find it very interesting. I was working with communities and orphanages, etc. And there's one specific one that really, uh, you know, kind of uh, touched me because it was such a beautiful endivia, but at the same time, they were struggling so much. So I started helping them. I'm part of their NGO. I'm a member of the NGO. I'm on the board. Uh, but I tried helping them. For example, I like photography, so I was taking pictures, making calendars for them. But I always thought, you know, like, how is this going to work next year? How am I going to be able to help with, um, you know, the, the, the costs of nutrition, of education, of healthcare, etc. So that's when I, I really came up with this idea of the uh, sustainable center, which would basically help with all the different aspects that they were struggling with. So they would be able to have a house, they would be able to have their own electricity, um, they would be able to have, you know, clean water that they can use, all the food that would be needed, and then different activities generating revenue, uh, which would be incorporated within the center. So um, that happened. And then we also thought, okay, you know, with them talking with them, they also thought it would be great if we could have a medical center and a learning facility within the center too. So we decided to integrate that as well, to have as much of a holistic aspect as, as possible. So basically, I mean, from that specific idea, I went on to travel and learn as much as I could in all of those fields. And during my travels, I already encountered people in need, uh, mainly because of disasters. So in Valparaíso, I was there in 2014. They had a huge fire that devastated uh, large portions of the town, especially the, the, the poorest areas. And I got together with people who had also done the Airship Academy, who I actually met in Ushuaia, and then also people who were, um, you know, like working in permaculture there, who I had also met and attended a few workshops with them. So we just started building houses for people. We started, you know, building um, botanical parks, food production areas, food forests that would also maybe help in the case of another fire because those we noticed that those species of plants which were endemic from the place resisted um, way better to fire than, you know, the eucalyptus kind of forest that they had there. So I was working there in the north of Chile as well after they had a landslide. So I was starting to put into practice some of the things that I had learned beforehand. So I was already kind of trying out different um, aspects of sustainable construction, uh, permaculture in general with the food production, just trying to empower people who were uh, in very vulnerable positions 
whether it is towards, you know, economically and also towards natural kind of uh, phenomena that, that can happen. And a lot of it is, you know, resulting from climate change in different ways. Wow. So, um, so I, the, the, a lot of that experience was actually done, um, you know, with very limited resources. So that's what I've gone to specialize into is to work with natural materials, uh, reclaim materials, anything that can be found locally, basically. And then, um, without really having to spend any money. So a lot of it has to do also with how much effort you're willing to put in salvaging these materials, going to fetch them, speak to people to know if you can, you know, take these tires here, these pallets there, this straw here, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been one aspect. But then the side with Earthship was mainly about the the more luxurious kinds and the sustainable systems so for me what has been interesting in learning with Earthship is to build a kind of quality house that most people who are used to living in a conventional house would be able to feel comfortable in you know they would be able to feel comfortable living in that kind of house because they have all the amenities because they have all the utilities even if it's on off-grid and um, and I think that is important for us at this stage to be able to promote, to get a lot of people interested in sustainable construction, because it still has a little bit of that edge, you know, of is it, does that mean I'm going to be going back into Stone Age? Does that mean I have to light myself with candles, etc.? So I think what Earthship has been able to achieve is 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 important in that sense to kind of bring sustainable construction to people who uh, want to be able to have their washing machine inside their house to people who I've seen many different kinds of Earthships, you know, people who have even a solar sauna inside their house, a swimming pool, etc. But all of this being able to be off grid. That's remarkable. Yeah, I completely agree with you that um, natural building specifically needs to kind of start to appeal to a bit more of an upscale market, not so much because they're the people who need the technology. Obviously, they're the more resilient population in the case of disaster or economic collapse, but because mm -hmm. they tend to set the trends uh, that everybody else tries to aspire to or to follow. And exactly. they can kind of help to steer or at least accelerate the move towards not just sustainable building, but design that actually creates regeneration in the ecosystem. I think that's really well said. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. let's take a step mm -hmm. back just for a second. And for the people who are unfamiliar with what an Earthship is, can you explain the defining characteristics and how the movement got started? Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll just start with what, how it was started first and then going into all of the different principles which make an Earthship. Um, so it all started with an architect, kind of renegade architect called Michael Reynolds. Um, he had a degree in architecture, but he found, as many of us do, that architecture is contributing more to the problems which surround us uh, these days than to actual solutions. So um, he went, he moved to Taos like a lot of people did around that time. It was at the beginning of the 70s. There was a lot of move with the, the hippie movement, uh, which went there. And he started experimenting, building with different materials. I think it's also important to mention that it was a moment where you had the first kind of UN talks of the, the limitations that we have towards growth, you know, eternal growth as is dictated by our economic system. And at the same time, we were seeing some of the negative externalities that were coming from our linear um, kind of production, you know, like uh, extraction, production, consumption, um, throw away in the dump system. So um, taking into account that side, and at the same time, it was the moment where we had the oil crisis, and the oil crisis basically showed a lot of people who were taking a lot of what we have for granted that with a sudden shock, 
we can go from you know the price of gasoline um, tripling, quadrupling, even more, and also that our dependence towards oil is not necessarily just for transport. Everything that surrounds this lifestyle that we've taken for granted basically revolves around gasoline right now. So it was a moment where where all of that was was you know um, had its own importance, and and it's a moment where some pioneers were were doing basically important work, and I do think that you know Michael Reynolds is one of them, um, and so he started experimenting building houses with garbage so his first houses were using cans and he used them as bricks and you know built a house with that and then it just went evolving into integrating other systems not just building with you know natural recycled materials but trying to incorporate you know like renewable energy into the house um thermal solar heating and cooling uh harvesting rainwater and basically stocking it in the house and then later uh, recycling it after its use. So it basically started with a kind of idea, an impulse, and it's with time and it's with the people who've also, you know, come to work with Earthship Biotecture that a lot of the different concepts have evolved and taken the, the shape that they have now. So it has, Earthships basically are what you would call an off-grid house and they have six major principles. One is that you would build with natural recycled materials. One is that you have thermal solar heating and cooling. So you don't need any um, energy apart from the sun to heat or cool your house. And we can go into more detail on that later. Renewable energy, solar panels, wind turbines, micro hydro uh, to power your house and then batteries to stock this energy and use it whenever those uh, natural phenomena are not available. So at night, you know, when your solar, when the sun is not out and you just have a solar system, you have enough energy stocked inside your house to use, you know, to be watching TV, to have your internet, to use your computer, etc. Um, and then the water harvesting from the roof, it's basically, you know, taking um, an umbrella um, just considering, you know, like a typical house as having an umbrella over it, you know, that's the roof over our heads and that water kind of just, you know, flowing away and we want it to flow away. An airship basically will reverse that and say all the water that falls from the sky, we will keep it and we'll be able to use it in different ways within the house. So depending on the simplicity of an airship, you will have, you know, pumps, filters, pressure tanks, etc., which will allow you to distribute the water within the house. And then you'll actually have different levels of filtration depending on the use. So the last use is the potable one where you will have, you know, an extra mesh to get rid of the small particles and then uh, generally a ceramic filter, um, which, which, you know, the whole system is pressurized, goes through and then goes into the tap. Mm. And then uh, we recycle the water. So every time the water is being used inside the house, whether you're taking a shower, washing your hands, etc., this water will be uh, directed towards bio, bio cells, bio plants. So botanical cells where the water basically feeds these plants it has some level of, let's say, nutrition as well from whatever's gone into the water. And then once it has gone through the plants and you have, let's say, uh, a conventional toilet that uses water inside your house, that water will be pumped from the biocell into your toilet. And then from there, it's going to go in a septic tank. And a conventional house basically through code only needs to have a septic tank and then go into a leach field, um, an airship will add another botanical cell or two after that. So basically the water that comes out of your septic tank after the anaerobic process has happened now goes and gets filtered through more plants before going into the leach field, Brilliant. which gives it 
know, something extra com compared to conventional homes. And sorry, and the last one is growing food. So through these botanical cells and other methods that you can have inside, you basically, you can grow your food year round, thanks to again, this uh, thermal solar um, principle, because the houses that you'll generally see have a greenhouse, which is facing the sun. And this greenhouse actually creates a microclimate. So in somewhere like Taos, New Mexico, it's a desert. Um, you have temperatures, you know, going as low as 30 degrees Fahrenheit in winter and going extremely high in the summer. You will be able to grow tropical um, fruits and vegetables inside your house just because you can create the, the, that climate within it. Yeah. Um, you know, the perspiration from the plants is actually going to create the right kind of humidity, um, the sun, the heat, etc. So those are the different principles. There's six of them. And so the, the, the ultimate goal is to have a house that does not need to be connected to any centralized grids, any uh, utilities that use up, you know, fossil fuels, and, and that can also be vulnerable in cases like we saw, you know, in Puerto Rico recently um, with a hurricane where actual grids can collapse. And therefore, if you live in such a house, you you can be resilient to such, you know, events. Yeah, those are all fantastic systems. And probably the main things that I admire about the Earthship Biotexture systems is all of those support measures to create the necessities and even the luxuries for a resilient life there on site. Um, now, I have to admit, though, that I've actually been a bit skeptical of Earthships in the past, partly because of the amount of cement that they use in construction, and also from what I know that they're still quite expensive to build, even with volunteer labor. So my question is, how have you worked to incorporate more natural building materials into the Earthships and also to lower the price of construction? Yeah, no, those are those are actually very important questions to, to, to keep in mind. So for me, I had I had two sides. On one side, I wanted to learn all these um, systems, how they worked exactly, how you could build them. But then the rest of my education, which was, you know, going to permaculture centers, actually, you know, coming up with new ideas through disaster relief operations, etc., and testing them out is um, to be able to come to an off-grid house that would be comfortable and give you everything that you need, but having to spend the least amount of money. And also, as you pointed out correctly, least amount of effort, because one of the building blocks of an airship is tires and it's pounding tires. And if you have, you know, 70 volunteers that are working on building a house, then, you know, that can work pretty quick, but that's not, you know, the general um, position of many people in the world. Um, and even, you know, having, having worked in places like South America and Africa, places where you would think that communities would come together and work together, that is not often the case, especially if you come after a disaster, everybody's, you know, thinking about themselves and how, how they're going to be dealing with it. So, um, Basically, what I would say is all the cement that's used in airship is absolutely not necessary. Um, I've, I've, you know, made sure that I would learn all the techniques to build with earth, especially. Um, and then, you know, nowadays we're talking about hemcrete, aircrete, etc. They all have, and even, you know, tire bells and that kind of stuff. They all have um, positive attributes and then their own negative ones. So... Really what happens is you will have to choose the kind of materials that you're going to use for your house depending on where you are. Um, you know, something like, let's say, aircrete might work very well in a tropical region because it actually insulates the inside of the house. Um, does it really work in a place where you have seismic activity, you know, earthquakes? We're not actually 100% sure yet. Um, tire bells are the same. They have, um, a higher R value. You know, there's less thermal mass than a compacted tire with earth. So there's all these different things to be taken into account. 
what I have just tried to do is to adapt my types of buildings really to the climate, um, geography, of course, whatever resources are available there, and then to keep those two things in mind, as you were saying, that are very important, to try and keep the cost to a minimum and to try and keep the effort also to a minimum, and that the time of construction is short because that is also, you know, that also influences people's uh, perception and choice afterwards. And of course, what is also very important is the aesthetic. People, you know, the first thing that they look at is the aesthetic of the house. Does it look good? Does it not look good? That has a big, big impact on people's choice as well. So um, if we if we just take, let's say, a regular conventional airship, we can take off, we can take out all the cement. Um, one of the reasons why airship chooses to use cement is that it's quicker um, to dry. So if, you know, like they're going to build uh, a school in Argentina soon, if you, you know, use a cob, let's say, to fill in all the tires, it will take you a very long time to dry. Um, but at the end of the day, it is a better material because it is able to breathe, it can regulate humidity, and it actually purifies the air inside your house. Sure. So, um, but at the same time, I do understand what you're saying that like sometimes the limitations of a build site require a material that you know either dries or sets or is a little bit more resilient for the application required. And if you're like you said, maybe running a workshop or something, and have volunteers or students there for a limited time, I can understand the application for that too. Exactly. I mean, the only the only problem is it is also used uh, within towels for houses that take a lot longer to build. So that there's just some of it is not necessary. That's just you know simple. Right. Then um, then it's also you know like um, if you if you take if you if you say that you're autonomous in terms of food with an airship, it is not true. Um, an airship can provide you with a certain amount of food, but it's not going to provide you with all the food that you need. What I do like with the principle, though, is that you are irrigating all that food basically by taking a shower or by washing your hands. So I think that's that's the kind of good side of it is that, you know, all of the water that you're going to be using within your house is going to be used directly to feed your plants. So, so that's important, but it is important to say that an airship is not going to provide you with all the food that you need. Then the other thing that you see too in, in the airship community is that a lot of people use propane, um, to cook. Now we all know that fracking is having, you know, devastating effects socially and also on the environment. Um, you know, if you decide to use a toilet that uses water, then why not looking to a biodigester and that the biodigester is your septic tank, but at the same time, it is providing you with the gas that you need uh, to cook your food. So I just think that you can you can minimize uh, a lot of the expenses and at the same time you can push towards more autonomy in a way that there's a lot to be improved in that sense. But I think that's what we're all striving for regardless of the design style that we're pursuing you know, anybody who's looking forward towards a sustainable regenerative future is always trying to push the boundaries of what their systems can provide for the inhabitants and for the community and the environment as a whole. Mm -hmm. Now let's go back for a second actually to what you said earlier and I know that Airships were designed initially for the high desert climate of northern New Mexico outside of Taos, but I've seen many of them being built around the world in very different environments. And in fact, there's even a few around here where I live in Guatemala. So the question would uh -huh. be, how can the basic design be altered in order to be appropriate for other climates and applications? Because I know mm -hmm. airships are, you know, very well known for having that sort of slanted south facing or, you know, sun facing solar gain side and being somewhat earth integrated with a large berm wall in the back. 
And I've seen those same elements being repeated all over the world. And I'm wondering if they are appropriate in all different climates or if not, how can they be amended? Yeah, I mean, one, one of that's let, let's say let's go to the principle of thermal solar heating and cooling. So if we take, let's say, Taos as an example, uh, very cold winters, very hot summers, um, which is something that we'll find, you know, on the extremes in the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere. So we're not going to talk about, let's say, the tropics. So if you're in the northern hemisphere, your house will be facing south. If you're in the southern hemisphere, your house will be facing north. You want to face it towards the sun and you want as much solar gain as possible. For different reasons. One is to get that sun inside your house in the winter and make sure that your walls, your floor, and as much as possible, you know, the walls inside the house, not just the structural walls, but the other ones, are made of thermal mass. Thermal mass can be, um, you know, uh, mud in different forms. So it could be cob, adobe bricks, it could be uh, burnt bricks. Um, could be tiles on the floor. It can be those tires that we said are filled with earth, cement, stones, etc. If you if you take all of these materials, they're called thermal mass because they are solids. They they are let's say they have a very low vibration. They're as solid as possible. When the sun hits them, the heat accumulates inside of them and is stored as a kind of heat battery. Once the, let's say at night, it gets cooler, then basically the heat seeks out of the, of this thermal mass and heats the inside of your building, the inside temperature of the air, etc. So this is what happens in, in that kind of environment. If we're looking at a tropical region, then we actually want the least amount possible of solar, let's say, rays entering the house or heating up the walls, because that's going to heat the inside of the house, which we don't want. So the other, the other side of it, let's say in Taos, is, and this is like the latest development, is to have skylights in the highest point, which is now the greenhouse, if we take the, um, the global model or the simple survival. <clears throat> so the roof is sloped north, and the greenhouse, which is facing the sun, is the highest point. And there you put a greenhouse. We all know that the heat, you know, rises. It rises to the to the skylight and then, you know, goes outside. Where does the air come from to replace all that air that's gone? It comes from tubes, which are put at the back of the, the house. As you said, there's a berm. There's, you know, like a mount of earth, which is there. And you have these metal tubes that go underneath this berm. So the, the principle there is that while the hot air evacuates your house, and the hotter it is, actually, the more air kind of evacuates, uh, then air gets sucked in through those tubes, and going through the, the earth, it gets cooled down by, um, you know, the temperature of the earth, which is, is relatively stable. Um, it would be even more so if you actually put those tubes under the earth, rather than just through the berm. Anyways, um, that is when it's very hot in summer. So that similar principle you can take to the tropics. And instead of trying to get solar gain, you know, in winter, you only concentrate on cooling inside your house. So you're going to make sure that you have enough light coming inside the house. And that's why the use of bottles is also quite interesting in airships. Um, usually it's taking glass bottles. It can also be plastic bottles, cut them in half. You use the bottom part of them and you basically stick them together and have the light which is able to come through so it acts as a window in a sense but it won't let direct sunlight come in so using as much as those as possible you can have light coming in you can also have your skylight which is not going to let the actual sun rays come in but is going to let you know enough sunlight to seep through to kind of um light up the inside of your house and you just want to make sure that whatever walls are exposed to the sun are insulated so that the sun does not the heat does not you know go to the inside 
And then with that system of the hot air being able to go out from the highest points and having ventilation tubes, which, you know, bring cold air inside or even, you know, having vegetation in front of um, airways that come in, you will also be able to cool down the kind of ambient air before it enters your house. So Earthship has these kind of basic models which can be adapted depending on uh, the climates of where you're situated. Fantastic. So now I know that you're also really passionate about using all these different appropriate technologies that you just talked about, especially for in the context of disaster relief and response. Now, how do you see these building methods and techniques as a better alternative to the heavily engineered rebuild operations in disaster zones that are designed to merely withstand uh, the next you know, earthquake or hurricane or flood or whatever it might be, and yet don't really respond to the problem in the first place that things were designed basically as a barrier alone and not as a full living system. Yeah, I mean, there's many different examples I could talk about in terms of the work that I've done so far. Right now, for example, being in California, which is hit by these very intense fires, it's to think of um, a building which you know could withstand heavy fires um, while you know providing you with oxygen because that would be a huge problem in those moments. Also, it is uh, a region that has earthquakes, so the house would have to be able to withstand. And you know, if we're thinking about climate change and some of the deregulations and the extreme weather events that we're going to see in the future, I actually think that you know, all houses should be anti-seismic in a way, built that way. Um, That if you want to build your house, make sure that it can withstand heavy winds, um, that fires can happen anywhere. So as much as possible, if you can try and make sure that it it could resist any fires, that would be great too. So for me, it's to try and, and keep all these aspects in mind when building a house and at the same time, it's thinking of the having the least amount of uh, of the footprint as possible, and actually, you know, being a positive externality, even if you're, you know, taking what might be considered as garbage away from the environment. So somewhere like in Cameroon, where we built the orphanage, um, you actually see that plastic bottles are such a problem. So people just chuck them out as if they were, you know, like a banana peel in the jungle. They just chuck them out everywhere. When you get the heavy rains, the water goes towards the stream, takes all the bottles there and all the plastic bags, etc. It actually blocks the, the waterways, it blocks the streams, blocks the rivers that overflow, create, you know, like problems for transport, but also uh, will go and flood latrines where you might have risks of disease like cholera or typhoid, which then, you know, goes and enters people's houses or is outside Mm. where people might leave their food. So it's like from one simple problem, in that case, let's say a plastic bottle, you have all these negative externalities coming through it. So what what I saw in my work before is that we were trying to tell people, don't cut these trees, don't do this, don't do that, but not offering a solution, a viable solution for doing that. In the case of plastic bottles, what we showed is you can build a house, you can use them as insulation, you can use them, you know, to actually cool down the air inside your house. So we're trying to show people that you can, you know, use this thing that you that you didn't see any value to that was creating problems. Now you can use it and and it'll make your life actually more comfortable. Um, so that's one thing. Also in South America, when we were building, you know, after these fires, we, um, some of the houses were on a hill. So what we would do is the recycling of the water would go into botanical cells and then suddenly seek into the ground where we had created terraces and would grow food. And all around those terraces, we would grow the trees that would be most resistant to fires. Uh, we would also test, you know, instead of pumps that require energy, we would try hydraulic rams, which only use pressure to be able to pump water uphill, or other techniques to create energy, which can be 
um, you know, actually just using the earth itself, soil, and basically putting uh, copper and zinc next to each other, connecting them in series, and you actually create energy. So we made, you know, micro experiments where we created a green roof, um, made it a fertile soil, put those in there, and then that was connected to lamps, LED, LED lamps, um, and you had constant light coming from the earth. So for me, it's it's to think, you know, solar panels, batteries, all of these things also have a big carbon footprint by themselves. So what can we use that we have all around us um, that is not necessarily just sustainable um, because that word has lost a lot of its sense, but um, that is kind of self-sustaining, something you do not have to go out again and repair your solar panel or buy another one. What can you have that you can just repair yourself and would be easy to do? Sure. And to, to get rid of the industrial process out of these things that we need and, and use all the time. Sure. But, you know, that's, that's also an, inter an interesting aspect which is coming up now let's say with the fab labs or, uh, you know, 3D printers uh, and the open source, you know, technologies is that the industrial production can now be decentralized too. So if enough people get together and invest in a little bit of machinery, let's say even to recycle plastics. So you want to break them down into little bits separate them by types of plastics and then you can create new objects by you know melting that plastic into a mold um you know if just a few people get together and build one of these you have your own recycling plant and you're creating um new it could be products let's say that you might even want to sell so uh, for me, it's, it's a very interesting topic about that, about how communities can now get together and actually take the production side into their own hands, production and recycling at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So now we were talking about just before this interview, I actually did a portion of my natural building internship in a community just down the road from y'all, but I actually missed the chance to come and visit your site. So can you talk a little bit about the community that cropped up there outside of Taos and the, the Earthship community and sort of what its vision is moving forward? Um, it's, it's a bit of a strange one. I mean, if we take, let's say, the, there's three big Earthship communities in Taos. There's what we call the Greater World, which is um, the headquarters of Earthship Biotecture, the company, and also um, um, its NGO which, you know, um, has done some projects around the world. Um, and also the visitor center where tourists can come and get information about airships. And it also has nightly rentals where people can actually go and stay overnight in an airship. So, um, that's the greater world. Then there's two other airship communities. One is in the mountains. One is, uh, further on the Mesa uh, where they basically do not really, uh, welcome visitors. Um, the greater world also, it's, it's, it's kind of important to note it. If you're going to go there, please go to the visitor center. Please, you know, if you, if you want to have a tour or see an airship, please call beforehand and that can be organized. A lot of what we see is that people, take it a little bit like a zoo you know they'll they'll just drive by go up to a house take pictures through the window sometimes even entering the house and you know people living there are not too happy about it so um so those those are the means there's a visitor center and you can also stay inside an airship i really would recommend you know if if you want to discover airships to find a way to stay inside of one because there's nothing else that's going to give you that experience that feeling that knowledge um that you can get from it and um the community itself it's um it's important to say that it's not that the, the final vision of it has not been attained yet and Interestingly enough, airships, you know, create bubbles. I do, I do often compare them to, you know, the the mother's womb. 
being inside of an airship, you feel protected, you feel in this bubble, um, you do have, you know, pretty much everything that you need. You do also need to respect it. Certain things that you're going to do are going to be at a specific time of the day. Let's say whenever we want to wash our clothes, we have to make sure that the sun's already out, that there's enough of sun hours left to be able to do it and then dry afterwards, etc. But it, it kind of it kind of puts you inside this bubble. And I think in the airship community, a lot of people living there actually, you know, complain that there's not enough of a community spirit. So there's there's not really a place where people can go get together. Um, there's not really, you know, a place where people can even, you know, do a little business or something like this, which would which would be able to help them out. Uh, there isn't the the food production, so it's not it's not the same as a community in the sense of you know, in the Permi world, how we would see it as uh, people having to work together, um, people having to contribute some kind of rotational um, scheme for, you know, governance or activities, etc. So it's, 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 yeah, it seems like that's a sort of unforeseen side effect of having an entirely off grid system is that you don't need help from outside and perhaps that's what's contributing to a lack of community ironically yeah i mean it is it is absolutely ironic i think i think some of it comes from society itself you know how um how we are geared towards individualism and and um also material acquisition i mean the thing is we were talking about before in its positive aspect Airship is also geared that way. It's to say that you can have anything you want inside your house. So basically, when we plan um, the solar system, we will look at, you know, what is it that I want to use inside my house? How much am I going to use it? Do I want a TV? Do I want Wi-Fi? Do I want these lights, these pumps, this sauna, whatever it is, you know, a little waterfall, whatever you want, how ex however excessive it might be, um, you will calculate, let's say, the size of your solar system depending on on those needs. I'm putting that in uh, in hyphen, but um, sure. but um, yeah, it's 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 one of it's one of the aspects that you can see. It is that um, the community itself can hardly be, you know, called a community in that sense. It's more like a residential kind of area could even sure. look at it as a suburb and 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 you know maybe in a way that's important you know for because we have huge problems in the suburbs in this country in the US um and with with airship you don't necessarily need to build a new house if you know the principles and you know how they work then you can actually take an existing house and retrofit it and apply all the principles to that house and have these sustainable structures. So I, I actually see it as really relevant for those kind of areas like suburbia, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm fascinated constantly too, at least from the, dis the design aspect of how do you facilitate functions like uh, community gatherings and um, sort of help between neighbors and interactions within a community through the design of structures, through the facilitation mm -hmm. of the landscape and things like that. And maybe, you know, that's one of the, the aspects that could possibly be improved in, the, in those communities as well. Exactly. And I mean, those for anyone who uh, who's listening to us, you know, and who's interested in, in creating a community, those are the things a little bit like project management, you know, like uh, disaster relief or whatever it is. A lot of people um, don't put as much importance in the planning stage. Yeah, and yeah. one for a community, it is to define exactly, um, do we not want any rules? Uh, if we want some rules, what should they involve? And how is this going to help improve this kind of community spirit? That's why it's very interesting. I mean, I, I, I like to examine different communities around the world to see what's working, what's not, and what might be the reasons for that. Fantastic. Well, Rowan, I could 
sit here and talk to you about these things all day, but I know you need to get back to your work and such. So before I let you go, could you tell us how people can get in contact with you, the Earthship Biotexture community, and if there are any events or workshops that you have coming up in the near future? Sure. So uh, if you want to get in touch with Earthships, I would I would suggest that you look on the website, earthship.com. Um and basically, if you want to learn some of the some of the techniques, etc., there's two major schemes for that. We already talked about, you know, being able to uh, go and stay in one of the houses to rent it out, or to have a quick visit with the visitor center. But another aspect would be to uh, do either the internship, which is uh, three, which is three weeks long. Um, all you have to do is pay for your housing. There's different prices depending on if you want a shared room or not. And, uh, during those three weeks, you're basically going to be working with the crew on whatever's going on. So it's very hard to tell what it's going to be in advance, but that's, that's one possibility. And that will be purely practical. Then, um, the, the actual school, um, what I've been working on and, and helped to run for, for the past, you know, um, year and a half is the Earthship Academy. And that also is on the website. The Earthship Academy is four weeks long and it's divided between the theory, which is going to take half of the time and the practical work. And um, if you do it in Taos rather than, you know, on an international or global session, as they're called, uh, you'll be able to, you know, stay in the housing, which will be an extra cost, stay in the housing, um, visit different airships in the community and also get labs, which, you know, talk about maintenance, how to build a water organizing module, um, how to, you know, set up some of the electrical system, etc. So, uh, that the cost of that is $2,500. Uh, it's not given to everyone. Um, they also do some help. So in case you might have, let's say a, a humanitarian or disaster relief project in mind, and you would like to go there to learn about it, or if you do not necessarily have the means to pay for it depending on your situation, you can ask for a scholarship where you will not have to pay any fees. I think it's important to, to, to mention that for the people who would be kind of, you know, put off by the price. Certainly. So, yeah, so those, those are the two main ones. And then uh, if you, you know, also look on the, on the Facebook page, uh, Airship Biotecture, any kind of field studies, so sometimes sometimes there is humanitarian projects or disaster relief or general construction of private homes or schools or whatever. Uh, those are being advertised, and that can be a way also to participate. Some of these field studies, especially when they're to build um, a private person's home, can actually be free as well. So I think that is that is something to look at. And we also have this group on Facebook, which we call Airship Inspired Community. And what we're going to be doing there is to have more uh, of a kind of decentralized aspect of how people can work together um, and create their own projects and use other technologies, other means of constructions, which are not necessarily, you know, what is always used with Airship. Um, and, and therefore it being more kind of, um, yeah, decentralized in that sense. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Rowan. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I hope we can catch up again sometime soon and yeah, let's, uh, let's stay in touch for sure. Yeah, that would be a pleasure, Oliver. And thank you. Thank you so much for the good work you're doing. We need, we Cheers. need to hear those voices. So that's great. Thank you so well, much. I'm sure we can collaborate on something in the future. We'll definitely stay in touch about that. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast, and I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, 
We've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the Intro to Permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward, man. Yeah, it's life-changing. Sure. But like I said, what I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our Intro to Permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens, and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. Because I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to atilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. 
Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.